Good morning, everyone. Hey, one of these days we're going to get a lift and this whole thing is just going to come up out of the stage, smoke and not really, but uh, yeah. Hey, we want to say thanks, Madonna and I, for the uh, reception last week and the time to hang out together and for the very gracious gift of that trip to the Holy Land with Dennis and Marcia Newkirk next May. That's, uh, that's really awesome. And uh, we didn't expect anything other than to become the lead pastor of the church and, and uh, to do that and to step into that uh, gratefully and joyfully for the, with the Lord's help. But that was very gracious of the church family to give that, and so we're, we're appreciative of it. Thank you so much for that and for your love and encouragement and prayers. And uh, I think on the program, there's a note there where you can send a note to Dennis and Marcia and express your appreciation for the time of ministry that they gave to us over eight months. And I hope that you'll do that. There are addresses on there and send them a note, send them a card. And um, he and I went back and forth by email this week. And uh, after 44 years of doing ministry, this is the first time in that long where they've had to search for a church home. And so they're looking for a, a church family, and uh, so we're, we're praying for them. Of course, they have two sons that are pastors in, in the Phoenix area, and so uh, who knows where they'll end up, but we're, we're praying for them about that. So I'm very appreciative of the Newkirks and the ministry that they had with us. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Brian McCoy, and I'm one of the pastors here. Let's open the Bible together this morning to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, if you're using the Bible there in the pew rack, it's on page 9, 11, and 12. We've got a page turn going on this morning, and uh, we're going to look at this story in the book of Acts. If you are a Christian, and you've shared your personal story of faith with very many people, or if you've shared the gospel with very many people, then along the way, you have found yourself in trouble, right? Sooner or later, you get in trouble. Now, some people hear your testimony, your story of faith, and, and they're accepting of it. They enjoy hearing that, and it's your personal testimony, uh, then there are other people who may hear the gospel from you and, and they're kind of, they're not sure, they're a little bit apathetic about it. And then there are others who when you share, they're just antagonistic. They, they don't want to hear that and they're, they're really maybe offended by it. Uh, they think you're meddling in their life, you're a bit arrogant about your beliefs. Think of a traffic light, right? Sometimes you get a red light, sometimes you get yellow, and sometimes you get a green and, and that's, that's kind of our experience. When you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus experienced trouble in his ministry. He ran into all kinds of difficulties. He taught his early disciples to expect trouble, and he promised them his presence with them and his help for them in the midst of trouble. And in Acts chapter 4 today, we're going to see the first signs of trouble in the witness of the early church. The first signs of trouble in the witness of the other church. And as we study through this passage, there are really two questions I think that it answers for us. The first question is this. In the face of trouble, what will we profess? And then in the face of trouble, how will we pray? So we know that if we live as believers in this world, we're gonna face trouble. So in the face of trouble, what will we profess? And in the face of trouble, how will we pray? And at the end of our time together, you, you found a card sitting there on the pew where you're at, and we're gonna refer to that card and give you an opportunity to pray uh, through what we've got there, all right? So as we look at Acts chapter four, we're coming out of the story of Acts three. There was a miracle, a man who has been born lame, and he's been healed by the risen Christ. And then Peter steps up with this gathered crowd and he preaches to them and he tells them who Jesus truly is. And that lands us right here, chapter four, verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed 
because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's a lot of green lights. That's a lot of people who have heard the message of the resurrection and come to believe. But there are these priests, these Sadducees, and they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they're annoyed by this message about Jesus being raised from the dead and that resurrection is possible for you if you'll trust in Jesus. And so they decide they're going to lock up Peter and John for continuing to put that message out there. And as we look through these next few verses, we're going to see this first question press in on us. What will we profess in the face of trouble? Look at it. On the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem And Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power and what authority did you do this? Now these are the same men, if you go back to the Gospels, these are the same men who tried Jesus. They're the same men who questioned Jesus. In fact, they had Jesus in this same spot. I want this image to come up. I want you to take a look at this. This is the Sanhedrin and how they were set up. And so there are 70 of them. And they had Jesus in that spot where you could see the accused would stand right before the high priest, surrounded by all of them. Well, that was Jesus just weeks before. And now it's Peter and John surrounded by powerful men in authority, pushing on them and asking them questions and telling them, don't speak about the resurrection of Jesus anymore. Now, if you look at the, at the setup, there's not really a safe way out of that environment. I mean, you could go backwards if you want, but those last three rows are for students of the guys who are sitting in the council. So they're not going to be favorable to you either. There's really not a good way out of there. You can imagine how intimidating it might be to find yourself surrounded that way. And maybe you've faced some trouble like that. Maybe not surrounded, but maybe... Maybe you've been at the water cooler or maybe you've been at lunch with somebody you work with or maybe it's been with somebody on your team or somebody that you're in class with and, and, and they've pushed a bit on your testimony or they've questioned the gospel and they've asked you, well, can you actually prove that the Bible is reliable? That it's actually the Bible, that it's the, the, the word of God? Or, or can you prove that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Or what about this idea that human beings are sinful and we're in need of a savior, that we can't save ourselves, that somehow we're not good enough? It's oftentimes when the conversation becomes an interrogation and we start to feel that, that pressure and that's what these guys are facing. And how did Peter respond? Well, he didn't respond the way he did a few weeks earlier. Remember him standing around a fire and Jesus was standing where they are now in the Sanhedrin being questioned. And Peter folded. He was afraid. That girl said, hey, aren't you one of them that used to follow Jesus? And he denied it once, twice, three times. On this morning, it's completely different. On this morning, after a night in jail, Peter is filled with the Spirit. Look at it. Then Peter filled with the Spirit in verse 8. This is amazing. Filled with the Spirit in verse 8. And then he says to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what mean this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This, Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I mean, in this intimidating environment, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and now he's bold. Boldness is not 
the kind of, uh, it, it's not a guy standing on a street corner with a sandwich board saying, turn or burn. It's not presenting the gospel to someone with a Bible twice the size of this one and kind of with an angry look on your face, a scowl, and really kind of giving it to them. That's not boldness. That might be brashness. Uh, that might be a lack of self-awareness. That might be pride. Who knows what it is? But it's not necessarily boldness. Boldness, according to the Scripture, is this God confidence. It's a confidence that comes to us only when the Spirit has filled us. And He allows us to move out, even in the midst of fear and anxiousness, to speak the truth. Now, I don't know if Peter was being snarky when he said, you know, are we actually being called on the carpet for a good deed done to a lame man? I don't know if he was being snarky there or not, but he was pointing out the obvious. Guys, this doesn't make good sense. This was a lame man, and now he's healed, and we're telling you it's through the name of Jesus, and you put us in jail overnight, and now you're questioning how this, this gets done. It didn't make sense to him. But this moment is really something that Jesus talked about with them before he was put on the cross, before he was raised, before he was ascended. In Luke chapter 21, look at what Jesus told his disciples. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, it might be my opportunity to sit in the corner and cry like a little girl, right? Because now I'm in jail for trying to speak the truth and share the gospel. But Jesus said, when those very difficult times come, it's an opportunity for you to bear witness. You see Paul do that, right? In his letters, he, he's thrown in jail and he says, God's given me this opportunity to share the gospel with all of Caesar's household. And so it's really amazing what, what Jesus says to them. And then he tells them, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I think that last piece right there is being fulfilled when it says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke this. In real time, it's happening. And we see Peter speaking up in boldness. You know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who live their lives under this kind of pressure, under this very real oppression and persecution. And, and it happens in all kinds of places. And this promise of Jesus is as good for them today as it was for Peter and John in their day. And it's as good for you and me as it was for Peter and John. We may not face that same level of persecution or pressure, but we're going to run into trouble as we share our faith. And so we can depend on him to give us his spirit in that moment to fill us and to give us boldness to speak the truth, even when everyone else around us may say, that's not the truth. Peter's filled with the spirit. He speaks with boldness. He says, Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He's alive, he's healed this man, and he's coming back to judge everyone. That's, that's that reference there in verse 11 when he says Jesus is the cornerstone. These men thought that Israel, the nation, was the cornerstone of all that God was going to do in the world. And Peter refers back to that psalm and says, actually, that's a statement of prophecy, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. The nation isn't God's cornerstone among what he's going to do in the world. It's Jesus. He's the anointed one. He is the cornerstone. It is Jesus. He's the one who is the savior of the world. But you guys have rejected him. And then he goes to verse 12. And verse 12 is really kind of a linchpin in this text. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which 
we must be saved. Remember, Peter and John are Jewish guys. They're speaking to a gathering of Jewish men. And if we believe what we read in the Bible, and we do, there is no one who had a greater spiritual privilege than the Jews. Remember what Peter said in chapter 3. He said, you are the heirs of the prophets. You're the heirs of the covenants of God. In other words, if anybody ought to know better, if anyone ought to know what God is doing in the world right now, it should be you. And yet, he stares at them and he says, your religion is inadequate. That all of your accomplishments, spiritually speaking, all of your moral goodness falls short. You need Jesus. He is the cornerstone. When Peter says that there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, listen to what he's saying. If these Jewish men with that God-given spiritual advantage that they had, if they cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus, then there's no religion in the world, there's no belief system in the world that can save you. What's true of these men is true of all men under heaven. That's what Peter is saying. That we all have a need to be saved and that we all must be saved through the name of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, someone invited you and brought you, uh, this may be the very kind of thing that you would expect to hear preached and spoken from the pulpit of a Christian church, an evangelical church. And, and there's a rub there, right? There's tension it feels like a very big obstacle and uh, it, it can get in the way. Because if you're a person who's not a Christian, but maybe you're religious, maybe you would consider yourself a spiritual person, you may think, well, Jesus is one among many, right? He's one among many and you don't have any personal issues with Jesus, but one among many and there are many faiths and many beliefs and there are many ways to God. But what we have in this text before us is Peter saying to these men, everyone everywhere needs Jesus. It's not just those men. Everyone everywhere needs Jesus. There are actually uh, some Christians who would say it this way. They, they, they shade it a little bit more. It's a little more narrow, but it's still very kind of wide open. They, they would say, you know, no one is saved apart from what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. No one can be saved apart from that. But it's not necessary for you to actually hear the gospel in order to become a Christian, to be saved. In fact, you can be a sincere follower of some other faith, some other religion. You can live your life in a morally upright kind of way and God will save you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and you may not even know it. But Peter, I think, is being very clear. In Acts chapter 2, you see it. Acts chapter 3, you see it. And you see it here in Acts chapter 4. Peter is clearly saying there is a name and that name must be known. And that name is Jesus, and it is through Jesus and by the name of Jesus that we are saved. In chapter 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of that name that saves us is linked. It's connected. You can't take them apart. And here he's making it clear. There's a, a divine necessity. There's this heavenly must that we must all come to faith in Christ. We must respond to the name that God has provided in order to be saved. And if you're not a believer, I understand that it can sound very arrogant to say that people must believe this or else. And people may push back on you if you're sharing 
your testimony if you're sharing the gospel. And they think that's a very arrogant thing for you to say or that it's very insensitive to other people's beliefs or very intolerant of other belief systems and other faiths for you to say that. But can I say this to you if you're not a Christian and you're, you're sticking it out so far with this? I want to say this, that when we share our personal faith in Christ, our story of how we came to know Jesus, or if we share the gospel with you and you're having coffee with someone and they're talking about what the gospel is, it may be a really awkward moment right? And it may be a little bit of a difficult conversation, but we're, we're hoping to persuade you, right? What we're not trying to do is coerce you. We can never do that. We're not called to do that, but we would like to be persuasive. We hope that we are persuasive by the Spirit's help and what we believe is the truth of the gospel. And so it might be awkward for a moment, but we're not somehow saying that we're better than you. The church isn't saying we're better than the rest of the world. What we are saying anytime we share the gospel is that, you know what, every person under heaven, man, woman, boy, and girl, every person under heaven is in the same needy position under the God of heaven, the one who created everything. Every one of us, we all need to be saved, and we all need to be saved through faith in Jesus to call on him. So there's some of that tension if you're not a believer, and I I understand that. But there's also tension on the other side, isn't there? Because if you're a Christian and you're thinking, you're, you're feeling it right now because you're, you're wondering about those people that Cody was sort of addressing when he was praying about the church being a sending church and sending people to the farthest corners of the earth, places where, where the church isn't in the majority or where Christianity is very much the minority, where it's very limited. What, what about people who are born and live there? and have very little, if any, access to the gospel. How do we deal with that? What happens to those people? I I can tell you that there's no plan B. The gospel, the Bible tells us that there is only a plan A, that Jesus has given us his spirit, and he has commissioned us to be his witnesses. Chapter one, verse eight, he says, where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That commission is our commission. Jesus told his disciples, you will make disciples among all the nations. And so it's a difficult truth, but it means we're his witnesses. We need to own our identity as believers in Christ. And some of us need to consider that God may call us even to go to the ends of the earth, to places where they don't have the gospel, so that people can hear and be saved. Otherwise, their end is hell. We must get the gospel to people. If, if we don't think that it's necessary to get to the gospel to them, then why would we bother to gather? Why would we budget sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 for missions in our missions budget? We can use that for something else. We believe that people need to hear the good news of Christ in order to be saved. And we believe we need to do whatever it takes to get people to the ends of the earth and to get ourselves across the street and next door and to that person that you work with so that they can hear the gospel too. I love verse 13. Look at this response. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's not a downer that these guys were uneducated and common men. The men in that council are educated and they are uncommon in that they have wealth and that sort of thing. They're sort of the nobility of Israelite culture. And they look at these guys and they know they're fishermen from Galilee. It's okay, it's just fine. But they're uneducated in that they've never been to the rabbinical school in Jerusalem. And they know that. In other words, Peter and John are, they're witnessing, they're sharing in a way that's way above their pay grade. They're, they're speaking with an authority that, that they would not expect them to speak with. And it's ringing a bell for them because there was a man who stood before them just a few weeks earlier who spoke with the same kind of authority. And they put it all together and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. They knew there was something unique and different about them. These men have heard the message of the resurrection and yet they are still not believing. Look at, look at verse 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So exactly what Jesus told them, he would give them the words, he would give them the help and even their greatest adversaries wouldn't be able to say anything about it. They're speechless. And so when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they have a holy huddle. They go into executive session. They put Peter and John in the, in the hallway. And I can imagine that there's probably some anxiety, maybe some fear. They're wondering, what are they talking about in there? Are we going to spend another night in jail? Are we going to spend a lot of nights in jail? What's going to happen? Because we've seen what they did to Jesus. What are they going to do with us? And so these guys are speaking. What shall we do with these men? Verse 16. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this isn't something done in a corner. Everybody knows about it. And we cannot deny it, they said. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them back in. And the guys come back in and it says they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so you think maybe the guys at this point, at least for a moment, they get a little respite from being in the crowd. They're surrounded. They get out in the hallway and maybe now fear has broken over them and they're really, but that's not what's going on. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're just not backing up. They just remain bold. I don't think they're being disrespectful, but they're certainly being plain spoken and they're saying it in a way that these men will understand. Should we listen to God, all of you godly men, or should we listen to you? God will have to judge with that. You'll have to judge what we should do with that. But we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. The resurrection of Jesus had marked their lives. The filling of the Spirit had made them bold and they were not going to quit in the face of trouble. And so they're challenged again, threatened again, and when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them, right? Look at that. They were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So there's some fear of man in that crowd of powerful, authoritative men. They're afraid of what the people will think if they do anything else to these guys besides threaten them. So they cut them loose. Because all the people are praising God that something wonderful has happened. It's a good thing. I, I love the fact that we can have encouragement, I think, for our hearts about the boldness of Peter and John. 
It ought to encourage us that Jesus will make good on his promise. He'll be with you in the midst of trouble. He'll speak through you in the midst of trouble. He'll bring boldness to you by the power of his presence and his spirit. And he's a great example to follow Peter here, right? Anytime you feel that awkwardness in the conversation, anytime you're ridiculed, I I put a post out on Facebook, not last week, but the week before, thinking about this message and asking people, hey, have you ever had, gotten into trouble when you've tried to share your faith? And several people weighed in on that. I had somebody that said, you know, I've been interfered with at work because of my faith. It's been made very difficult on me there. Uh, Someone said it's been made very difficult on me in school, particularly in grad school. People interfere with my studies, research materials, things like that. It's difficult at times. But we ought to be encouraged to follow the example of Peter here. There's a strong temptation, right, in the midst of trouble to just kind of go along with the flow, to get in line, and to say the socially acceptable thing that, sure, there's many ways that person can be made right with God. And I'm not trying to, you know... What we need to do is own our identity as witnesses for Christ in this world to recognize that we've been empowered by his spirit, filled with his spirit, and commissioned to go out with the good news. What will we profess in the face of trouble? Will we follow Peter's example? Will we lean on Jesus for boldness? In the face of trouble, what will we profess? And in the face of trouble, what will we pray? Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They'd been gone for 24 hours, right? Guys, where have you been? <laughs> We've been in jail, in jail. And you may not want to share that kind of story with the church, right? It might spook a few people. They might get a little afraid, but that, they just come right out with it. This is what's happened to us. And when they had heard it, verse 24, they lifted their voices up together to God. The first impulse, I love this, the first impulse of the early church when they hear this news, oh man, we got in trouble because we preached the resurrection and we got thrown in jail and we got dragged before the whole Sanhedrin, all 70 of them surrounding us, asking us questions, and then they cut us loose. And their first impulse is to pray. And how did they pray? They prayed, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They didn't pray... Heavenly Father. They didn't pray. Loving Father. Now, do they believe God is their Heavenly Father? For sure. Do they believe he's their loving Father? Definitely. But they prayed Sovereign Lord. You know, it's it's, the Greek word is the word from which we get the word despot. You know what a despot is? Someone who rules with a heavy hand, who does what they want, when they want, how they want. No one gets in their way. And if anyone does get in their way, there's trouble. And these guys open their prayer saying, Sovereign Lord. And you're going to see how it falls out. God gives them Psalm 2, I think, in the midst of their praying. They say this, Who through the mouth of our father David and your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Look at this prayer, Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. These are rhetorical questions, right? You get that? Psalm 2, the essence of Psalm 2 is this. God's king will rule the world, and the world can't stop it. If you go to Psalm 2 and read it this afternoon, that's the essence of it. God's king will rule the world, and the world can't stop it. But the world will gather together, and the world will do whatever it can to hinder the king that God is going to send from ruling. 
And they're saying, we've seen that. Look at this. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. They're recognizing Jesus as God's king. Jesus, you're anointed, who both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So no one is left out, which means none of us are left out. We're all guilty of rejecting Christ, of turning away from him. If we had been there, we would have been among those crowds. And then he says this, they all gather together to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What a prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that you might expect them to pray. It maybe is not the prayer that you would have prayed. Because when you're in trouble, especially like this, you may pray, God, just give me a safe way out. Uh, Lord, protect me, give me comfort. They've been really mean to me. They've said terrible things about me. They're getting in my way at work. It's become very difficult. I'm not sure who to talk. No, they, they pray a, an entirely different prayer. And why is that? Because they have become convinced that the God that they serve is the sovereign Lord. And that even the trouble that they're going through, even the trouble they're facing is from his hand. Nothing happens in this world apart from the hand of God orchestrating it. And they're saying, even in the midst of this trouble, God, we know that this is all part of your plan. Even when they gathered together to crucify your son, it was part of your plan. And we know that we're standing here today, it's part of your plan. Use us, Lord. They pray a completely different kind of prayer. Look at it in verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their greatest concern is not for their safety, their protection, the future of the church. Their greatest concern is for the mission and to be the witnesses that God has asked them to be, that Jesus commissioned them to be. In the face of trouble, they ask for boldness in it. In the face of trouble, they ask for faithfulness to the task that Jesus has given to them. To keep witnessing, to keep sharing. Even in the face of trouble, even in the face of danger, even when it's costly, we want to continue to speak the name of Jesus. They're really saying what? Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, we're going to do our part. We know who we are. We are witnesses in this world and we have been empowered by your spirit to be that. And grant to us that we might continue to speak with boldness by your spirit. And we're asking that you would show up and do your part and change hearts and lives. Show up in power, in authority and transform sinful human hearts into new hearts. A kind of miracle that only God can do. And this is our pattern when someone kind of pushes back on your testimony or you're sharing the gospel and they believe you're being insensitive, perhaps to their own beliefs or intolerant of the beliefs or the faith of someone else, or it's just arrogant for you to say, you must come this way, there is no other way. What will you do? How will you pray? Will you pray this way? Will you pray sovereign, Lord? Grant that I would continue to be bold in sharing my faith, even in the face of difficulty. The Lord answered their prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with a boldness. Peter and John were filled earlier in the chapter, and now they are all filled with the Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I love the fact that God answers their prayer this way. You know, in Psalm 104, the the Bible says this about God. You look on the earth. God just looks on the earth, Psalm 104, and it trembles. You touch the mountains, and they smoke. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's this vision that Isaiah has of the temple and what happens in the midst of all of that. It says the thresholds and the doors began to shake in the temple. This was a huge building, and it shook. You go to the end of the Bible in Hebrews, the Bible tells us that God is going to give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. How do we know it'll be the right kingdom? Because the scripture says there that God is going to shake the world. And everything that is able to be shaken is going to fall away and come to nothing. But the unshakable kingdom is what he's going to give to us. And so even as you face powers, he's speaking to to them, even as you're facing powers and authorities who threaten you and who trouble you, I'm going to give you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. They're shaking you up. You'll never be shaken as you continue to be bold and profess faith in Christ. And he's saying the same to you and me. In the world that we live, in the culture that we find ourselves in, all kinds of people are going to push back at time or t- a time, at one time or another. You're going to get a red light occasionally. Then you're going to get a yellow light and people will be a little bit apathetic about what you have to say. They're not really necessarily interested or disinterested, but they're kind of being polite. And then occasionally there will be a green light and someone will lean in and they will want to know more and that is the work of God. And he's doing it. This passage teaches us something that an exclusive gospel opposed by the prevailing powers, by the culture, But professed by an emboldened witness is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. And so in the face of trouble, we should pray for boldness in it and faithfulness to stay at it. In the face of trouble, we should pray for boldness in it and faithfulness to stay at it. When I started to work on this passage in this chapter a couple of weeks ago and praying through it, I thought, you know, some of us don't share boldly or really at all because we're afraid that trouble might come. And we've already pointed out the fact that Jesus promised that it would come. And so in, you know, in the fear that it would come and we don't want to face that awkward question or the awkwardness of that conversation or the antagonistic response or maybe a cold shoulder, we just, we just don't share. Or maybe some of us have stopped sharing boldly, stopped sharing really you know, faithfully because like a kid who touches a hot stove, we don't go back. We've faced some trouble. And we thought, you know what, it's, not, it's just too difficult. I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to stay away from that. And some of you, I remember when I put that Facebook post out, uh, some, someone mentioned, you know, I, I would love to share more and I have family members that I want to see come to faith in Christ, but I'm not exactly sure how to start. And that may be you. You may be a Christian and you're not exactly sure how to start that conversation, where to jump in. I want to exhort us this morning to pray. That's the place for all of us to start. Should we be intentional about sharing the gospel? Yes, but we should pray because this is the work of God that we're entering into. Jesus said, I'm gonna give you power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So we have an identity now in Christ as witnesses of Jesus and we've been empowered by his spirit to be those witnesses to people near and far. But we dare not launch out apart from prayer because it's the work of God. 
if we attempt it apart from prayer, apart from expressing our dependence on our sovereign Lord, apart from leaning on him and trusting in him, even in the process of sharing and opening conversations, our mission will go nowhere. We need his empowering boldness to be after it and to stay in it, even when trouble comes, because it'll come. I wasn't here and I asked in the early service, I don't, I don't know that there would be anybody in this service. Anybody in this service here when Foothills Baptist Church was born, I mean like initially, 30 plus years ago, were you part of the group? Any, anybody, look around, not a hand. Now some of you have been here for a long time. I've been here for a little bit of time. But when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what, we're, we're really the beneficiaries of people who prayed this way. We're the beneficiaries of that. I mean, we're, I don't know what it is outside, 87, 88. Do you know what it is, Cody? I don't know. It's 90 degrees. It's hot. (laughs) But here we are in air-conditioned comfort on padded pews and a carpeted room. And we're the beneficiaries of what these people did 30-plus years ago because they prayed. They, They saw a community that was just being born, houses that were just starting to come up, developers starting to do new things. And they looked out on all of this ground and they imagined all of the homes that would be here and all of the people, all the families that would come to this place and they started to pray, God, would you build your church there? God, would you help us to be your witnesses there? And so what did they do? They prayed and they invited people. They engaged with people. They invited them to come. They were meeting in a a home and then they moved to a school and started to have services and there weren't very many people. But they persisted at it and they remained bold and they shared the gospel and they gave. And God built his church. And God is still building his church. It's 30 plus years later. But Jesus means for the gospel to be unleashed through you and me into this whole community just as it was 30 plus years ago. He wants to use us that same way. On that card that you have sitting there with you, there's a diagram, there's an image of our community, those three zip codes, 045-048-044. And uh, on the back of that card, you'll see, we we know that there's 81,000 plus people that live in those zip codes. It's a lot of folks. And you can probably plot where you live on here. Some of you may live east of the 10, and you can go out there to that little white margin on the card and put a little dot for your house if you want. But most of us probably live there. 81,000 plus people live in this area. And we, we think by our best estimate that there are, that there are 75,000, maybe 70,000. Listen, there are tens of thousands of people that live all around us who don't know Jesus. They don't attend a church anywhere. Now, we can go to Indonesia, we can go to Malaysia, and we will go to those places because people there need Jesus. And we've know, we know what his commission is. But we also need to go across the street. And we need to knock on our next door neighbor's door. And we need to have those conversations and invite them over to our home. Let's love our neighbors, right? And the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is to pray for them to come to know Jesus and to ask Jesus to use you to help them to hear the gospel. And so that's what that line is for. Who's your one? Out of 81,000, who might be your one? Who might be your friend or your family member that live in this area? Or maybe someone who 
makes your coffee, maybe a barista at Starbucks or where you've been or one of those kind of places or somebody who's served you in a restaurant here and you, you go there every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and you have breakfast and the same person serves you. Maybe it's that person and you've, you can have that conversation and you can begin it. Who is that person? Would you write that name in that blank right now? Just write it in there. And if while you, some of you are writing that, you're thinking, you're looking at that blank and you're thinking, I don't, I don't have a name to write in that blank. I don't know someone who's not a Christian. That's all right for today. But let's see if we can change it. Maybe what you ought to write is a prayer request that might go something like this. Sovereign Lord, use me to pray for someone who needs Jesus. Help me to see someone this week, to meet someone this week that needs Jesus and begin to pray for them. And write that person's name down. Uh, on a napkin or whatever and then begin to pray for them that God would use you to help them see and come to know Jesus. Now like they did, they prayed for boldness to continue to share. So let's pray as we finish this morning for boldness to share. To be that church that started here 30 plus years ago. That Jesus would unleash his gospel through us into a community of people who need Christ. So I'm going to give you a few moments this morning to pray. If you want to huddle up with two or three people and share those names with one another and say, I want to pray for this. Would you pray with me for my friend or for my family member, for a coworker, for somebody that's in class with me? You can do that. If you want to just turn together and do that, you can pray on your own, whatever it is. I'm just going to give you a few moments to do that, and then I'm going to pray us out, all right? So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer for this. Sovereign Lord, 2,000 years ago, the rulers and the kings and the peoples lifted their hand and their fist to heaven and shook it in the face of your son, the anointed one who come from eternity into time, who lived a life that we could not live, a life of sinlessness, and who laid down his life in our place on the cross for our sins who gave up his life and died on that cross and was buried and rose from the dead three days later and who has ascended and seated at your right hand and is coming again God we don't understand why the nations rage why even in our culture we might be considered arrogant or intolerant or insensitive 
but we know that we've run into trouble in sharing our faith. And we believe your word and what it says, and we know that if we continue to share, we'll see more trouble. So our prayer this morning is that you would fill us with boldness by your spirit. Not brashness, not some kind of angry response to people pushing back, but a confident boldness that Jesus, our Savior, has risen from the dead and is alive. And that he saves to the uttermost. And that your word is true. And even when we don't necessarily have all the answers to all of the questions, it is your work that you have commissioned us to go out and to accomplish. And you have promised to be with us and to empower us, Lord Jesus. And so we cry out to you now, give us boldness, confidence in you to go out and to share. And Father, we ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would change human hearts, that you would remove hearts of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that you would give people faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, we pray for names that maybe we couldn't write down on this card, but names of people that we might meet this week. God, I pray for those who couldn't write a name, but who are honestly uh, sitting before you right now and saying, God, bring someone to me. Help me to have eyes to see and ears to hear to remind me to collect a name and to begin to pray for that person and then seek out opportunities as you might give them to me to connect with that person at a deeper level the next time. Father, we pray that you would save people right here in the Ahwatukee foothills. That was what was true of uh, the people who planted this church and began it 30 plus years ago would be true of us. What was true of Peter and John and the early church would be true of us. Lord Jesus, unleash the gospel through our lives into this community for the sake of your name and your glory. God, we do pray for other churches that are preaching the gospel in this area. And we pray that they would be fruitful and strong and that they would go with the same boldness that we go with. We pray for them. Help us to stand shoulder to shoulder with them, to share the good news of Christ with our neighbors and our friends and make us fruitful for your glory. We pray it in your name, Lord Jesus, the name that is above every name, the one name given under heaven among which men may be saved.